Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, welcome to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And uh, we are here to talk about matters constitutional. That doesn't mean we can't talk about what's going on uh, right in the headlines today. Uh, Colonel, the impeachment trial of former President Trump is underway, and I wondered if maybe that's where you would like to begin today. I think we should say some things about it. There aren't a whole lot of new constitutional developments. We've been covering the constitutional issues on this impeachment and trial for some time now, but let's just take a look at what's going on. As we speak right now, the Senate is engaged in the trial phase of this impeachment process. The House impeached just a few days before President Trump left office, and they did so in what was largely a partisan vote with 10 Republicans who were kind of never-Trumper-type Republicans voting with the Democrat majority to impeach. Now, impeaching is kind of like indicting. At that point, it goes to the Senate, and then the Senate conducts a trial. Now, the question is, can they conduct a impeachment trial after the president has left office? And I'm of the opinion the answer to that is no, and we don't have any court precedent on it. The court has never addressed this issue. I would say in a case like this that if, as appears to be extremely unlikely, two-thirds of the Senate were to vote to convict him and then vote to bar him from holding public office, that he might appeal that to the Supreme Court, and then we might get a definitive ruling. But all we have at this point are a couple of precedents from Congress itself. And these are really just kind of like examples of what Congress has said that in the past what they've, what they've done. Now, one of these is the 1876 trial of Henry Belknap, the Secretary of War. And Secretary Belknap was had being impeached by the, the House, and two hours before the House was to vote on his impeachment, he submitted his resignation. And the House said, we're not going to accept this, that that would mean that somebody could evade impeachment just by resigning, and so they went ahead and voted impeachment anyway. It then went to the Senate, and the Senate decided they had jurisdiction to try the case, but they fell short of the necessary two-thirds to convict or to part from holding public office, and so nothing further than was done. Now, again, this is only a precedent from what the Senate has done in the past. There is no court ruling on it. Now, there's another precedent from the Senate, and that goes back to 1797, and this was the impeachment of a Senator Blunt. Senator Blunt had been impeached by the House but before it came to the Senate, the Senate had already expelled him under another provision of the Constitution. And that being the case, the Senate determined we do not have jurisdiction to do anything further. Now, I'd say that is probably a much more important precedent, the 1797 case, than the 1876 case. Because this 1797 case, that's eight years after the Constitution was ratified. I would suggest that most likely of those senators at the time, that a number of them had been delegates to the Constitutional Convention themselves. And, of course, the president at the time was 
well, it had been George Washington at the beginning of this, and then right about that time it became John Adams, but the, these were the founding generation. And so what I'm saying is that the 1797 event probably reflects the intent of the framers of the Constitution better than the 1876 event with Secretary Belknap, simply because that's further removed from what the framers of the Constitution were thinking. But again, neither one of these actually involves a court precedent. And so we really don't know what the court would say. My inclination is that they might say that neither the House nor the Senate could proceed after Secretary Belknap had resigned or after President Trump's term had expired. And the reason I'd say that is that when you read that the action that can be taken in the event of an impeachment and a conviction consists only of removing him from office, and that, of course, is a dead letter since he's already left office, or barring from office, but it goes on to say the civil courts can engage in criminal punishments. This suggests to me that the whole purpose of the impeachment clause is not to punish, rather the purpose of the impeachment clause is to remove somebody that we don't want in office and that we think that his serving is so egregious that we can't even wait till he finishes his term. Anyway, as we see the voting that has taken place on whether or not the Senate had jurisdiction over this, it was 56 to 44. Five Republicans who have been critics of the president in the past joined with the 50 Democrats. And then one more, Senator Cassidy of Louisiana. And Senator Cassidy has already taken considerable heat back home. The Republican Party of Louisiana has criticized him strongly for this, saying that they think he voted contrary to what the Constitution requires. <clears throat> However, I can only say that Louisiana is a very conservative state and a state that is a very pro-Trump state. And I have to say that, well, I would disagree with Senator Cassidy here. He probably voted what he thought was the right thing to do. I'll give him at least credit for that. But the fact that he voted to say that the Senate has jurisdiction does not mean that he's going to vote to convict or that even those five are going to vote to convict or even maybe a few Democrats might not vote to convict, although so far it seems like they've been pretty much marching in lockstep. But the other point I would make on this too is that what they are trying to do here is not simply bar President Trump from running for office again. They are trying to bar 73 million people from voting for the candidate of their choice. And they're doing so supposedly in the name of democracy. And this, I think, is the height of hypocrisy. We've already examined the evidence as to whether or not he did incite a riot or incite an insurrection. And as we pointed out before, the insurrection seems to have started even before he began his speech and, well, before he finished his speech, but not only that, but now we are starting to see evidence produced and some of the Democrats, in fact, are even presenting this evidence. The evidence that actually this insurrection had been planned out by some of these extreme elements weeks before it took place. 
And so clearly it was not instigated by President Trump. And I'm thinking the more evidence that comes out in this trial, the less likely the House is, or the Senate is going to be able to vote for a conviction with a straight face. Anyway, so that's where I think we are right now. And just remember, as we watch these events unfold, we are seeing the Constitution at work. Now, another thing I'd mention on this, too, is that when we look to the principles of the Constitution, that one of the main things that political scientists from the beginning of history have been concerned about is how do we provide for succession, for transition to power, when one president or king dies and another one's going to take over? Now, in some cases, like the Egyptians, they had a very ironclad rule. It was to be the eldest son of the pharaoh becomes the new pharaoh, and that led to stability. Egypt is one of the most stable civilizations in history, but it also probably led to some mediocrity because the eldest son might not be the most qualified. Anyway, and then others, like the Persians, had a much broader system where anyone in the royal family could contest for the throne, and that might have led to more dynamism, but also a lot more instability. I think we have to say about the system that we have here, things with the exception of the riots that took place have taken place in accordance with law, and we have seen, with that exception, a peaceful transfer of power. I'm going to mention one thing else before we take our break, and that is that you look at the disaster that took place on January 6th, the utter chaos. Now, if President Trump had wanted to stage a coup, don't you think he would have done a better job than this? <laughs> that by itself, I think it race ups a locator, as we say, this speaks for itself. He didn't plan this. Um. When we come back, Colonel, there's one final question that I'd like to, to give you a moment to explore, and that is the question of, um, it doesn't appear that there are enough votes for a conviction in the Senate. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get your take on, uh, if it's clear, <laughs> if it's clear that they don't have the votes, why proceed with this? What, what could possibly be gained? Anyway, that's the question on my mind as we go to break. We'll be back with Colonel Eidsmo. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Stay with us. Exercise. I've worked out one to two hours a day in my home gym every day for decades. That's how much I believe in exercise. But now it turns out I could have saved thousands of hours and used those extra hours for making money or enjoying my family simply by using the brand new X3. The X3 is a compact premium home exercise product that uses variable resistance, which 16 different research studies show is more effective than free weights for building speed, strength, muscle, and avoiding injury. And it only takes 10 minutes a day. The X3 was invented by best-selling author Dr. John Jackwish, well-known for inventing a medical device that reverses osteoporosis. The X3 is portable and easily stored. X3 is used by dozens of professional athletes, including NFL and NBA players, to replace weightlifting. Get your X3 today. Go to X3Bar.com. Enter promo code WAR and save $75. That's X3Bar.com. X3Bar.com. 
mounds and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. It's totally normal to be constipated with belly pain, straining, and bloating again and again. No way. You could have a chronic condition called irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC. Linzess, or linaclotide, is a prescription that treats IBSC in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives to help relieve belly pain and let you have more frequent and complete bowel movements. Individual results may vary. Do not give to children less than six, and it should not be given to children six to less than eighteen. It may harm them. Do not take Linzess if you have a bowel blockage. Get immediate help if you develop unusual or severe stomach pain, especially with bloody or black stools. The most common side effect is diarrhea, sometimes severe. If it's severe, stop taking Linzess and call your doctor right away. Other side effects include gas, stomach area pain, and swelling. Talk to your doctor today. You may be able to save on Linzess and make fewer trips to the pharmacy. See if you're eligible to pay as little as $30 for 90 days. Visit Linzess.com or call 1-800-L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. Sponsored by Abbey and Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, just one final question about uh, the the impeachment proceedings. As I understand it, um, they, they'll need a full two-thirds majority, right? 67 votes to in order to uh, convict. My understanding is that, uh, you know, the, the voting is going to fall along the lines of those that voted to impeach. Um, why go on with this? If, if it's clear that the votes aren't there, is, is there a reason to continue the process, even though it, uh, it may be distracting from other issues? Why do we continue when it seems almost certain that President Trump is going to be acquitted when this proceeding is finished? Good question. The answer I would give is that, first of all, the left hates Donald Trump more than they have hated anybody, well, I'll say anybody since Jesus Christ. And you look at what was happening here. We'd had eight years of President Obama. We had Bill Clinton earlier, all of which was preparing this nation for socialism. And after eight years of Obama, it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. With eight years of Hillary, we would then have a socialist transfer in this nation. But Donald Trump almost single-handedly stood in their way and prevented that from happening. And as a result, they hate him with a passion. And part of the purpose of this is to embarrass him, to try to tarnish his image in the public mind. I don't think they're succeeding in this. So far as all of this has gone on in the last month or so, President Trump's popularity appears to have stayed about the same or, if anything, even risen a little bit. 
So I don't think they're going to succeed, but probably they are in a crazed hatred, hoping against hope that that is what is going to happen. It may be they're also hoping that maybe as they bring out their evidence and, you know, sometimes you completely lose your objectivity and it may seem to them that they've got enough evidence to convict and they think that if they go through this proceeding that enough Republicans will be won over by it. Maybe they're waiting for President Trump and his team to make some kind of fatal mistake. And yes, I would say this trial is his to lose. And if they are careful and don't make any fatal mistakes, I think they've got it in the bag. Or one other possibility, maybe this is a distraction for the public. And it's distracting from the utter chaos and the inability of the Democrats to deliver what they're planning for an agenda as far as the vaccine, as far as the lockdowns, as far as their spending programs, as far as the Equality Act that they're putting forth. And so maybe this is to distract the public from other things that they are trying to do. Okay. I appreciate your take on that. Where would you like to go from here? Well, I think where we need to go now is back to what we were talking about before, which is Article 1 of the Constitution. As you recall, Article 1 deals with the legislative branch of government, the Congress. And we have just finished with Section 8 and 9. Section 8 are the powers that we, the people, have delegated to the President. I'm sorry, to the Congress. And Article 9 has been things that we have withheld from Congress or limited for Congress. Now, when I say these, we need to understand that it's kind of strange to even have a section like this. There's a reason for it, but we need to explain it. And the government is a government of limited and delegated powers, meaning we don't need to tell the government what it can't do. We only need to tell it what it can do, and anything that we haven't delegated, anything we haven't said Congress can do this, Congress can't do. But in Section 9, there are several things there that we have said that the Congress can't do, or we have said that Congress can do only with certain limits. And, for example, no money shall be drawn upon in the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriation made by law, in other words, it has to be by law, that is, by a congressional enactment, before we can draw money from the Treasury. Various other things that are provided here, like the writ of habeas corpus cannot be suspended except when there is rebellion or invasion and the public safety requires it. And so these are things where we have said Congress can do these things only under certain limited circumstances. And now we come to Section 8, I'm sorry, Section 10, the last section of Article 1 dealing with the Congress. And Section 10 is a provision stating what limits we are placing on the states. And again, remember the 10th Amendment. The 10th Amendment says that the powers not delegated to the federal government by this Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So the presumption is that any power we haven't delegated to the federal government, we reserve to the states. Unlike at the federal level, where we say the federal government has only the powers we delegate to it, at the state level, we say the states have all the powers we have not prohibited to it. And this section is one of several sections that limits 
the powers of the states. First of all, we're told that no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. Now, there are a lot of things in there that need to be unpacked, so let's look at these one by one. Jefferson once made the statement that in matters of foreign policy, we are one nation. In matters of domestic policy, we are 13 nations, or today he would say 50 nations. In other words, for domestic affairs, largely we let the states run their domestic affairs as they see fit. But for matters of foreign policy, there we need to speak with one voice, and that voice has to be the voice of the federal government. And so we provide that states are not going to be having a foreign policy of their own. Rather, no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation. Whether a state can't enter into a treaty with Russia or with Britain. Rather, only the United States as a nation can do that. And I might say this does not prohibit a state from entering into certain trade agreements. And sometimes a state will, even a city sometimes, will enter into a sister city relationship with a city in another country, for example, and a city or a state might enter into a trade arrangement with another country, so they facilitate each other's trade and so on. But there's going to be an alliance with another country. There's not going to be a treaty with another country. And this applies not just to alliances with other countries, but also treaties or alliances with other states. In other words, we're not going to be setting up little groups of states over here, a New England Confederation or a Southern Confederacy and so on, that the states are all going to be directly under the federal government and are not going to be making alliances with one another. And then we already said that the federal government can grant letters of mark and reprisal, that is giving authority to, to seize ships and so on. States may not do so. And so, Brian, if you wanted to pilot your boat on Great Salt Lake, and you wanted to be able to plunder other boats there and mm. gain a little <laughs> revenue for loving liberty, well, you have to go to Congress for that. So the state of Utah is not going to be able to grant it to you, nor will Alabama be able to grant me that power on the Alabama River. Interesting. Well, there goes one thing I'm going to have to cross off my list of things to do. Plunder others. Oh, comes come to find out that wasn't on the list anyway. All right, we'll we'll come back here in just a few moments. Are we going to continue on with section one and okay, Article One, section? Actually, which section are we going to be coming to this time? We're we're in ten for the rest of the time. Ten. Okay, doke. All right, Colonel John Eidsmo is is with the foundation. Finish Article One. Very good. Colonel Eidsmo is with the Foundation for Moral Law. We'll be back right after this.
Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, Section 10, is it? Section 10. And the hope today is we may even finish Section 10, which means we'll be finished with Article 1, the section dealing with Congress and ready to start next week with Article 2, dealing with what may be the most powerful individual in the world to the President of the United States. Continue with Section 10 of things that the Constitution prohibits the states from doing. States may not coin money. In other words, we're going to have one national currency. If New Hampshire had one currency and Virginia had another and so on, we'd have all kinds of problems among states with commerce with each other, exchange rates, and so on. And part of what we saw with the Commerce Clause in Article 1, Section 8, was that it was not only to allow Congress to regulate interstate commerce, but it was also to limit the power of the states to regulate interstate commerce. The idea is commerce should be able to run free through the various states, the free flow of interstate commerce. And it was felt that as commerce flows freely, there will be more prosperity for all. That was the basic premise of what free enterprise is based upon. States may not coin money, they may not emit bills of credit. Bills of credit seems to refer there to paper money. And in those days, it was thought very strongly that paper money that was not solidly backed up by gold and silver was going to simply lead to inflation and all sorts of economic problems. And states may not set up another means of exchange besides gold and silver. They may not pass a bill of attainder, and we saw that Congress also can't pass a bill of attainder last week. The bill of attainder is a bill by which a state would impose, in effect, a criminal punishment upon a certain individual or group of individuals or family. In other words, maybe the state might say, anybody who participated in an insurrection of the Capitol automatically forfeits their American citizenship. You can't do that by a statute. That would have to be done by a court after a due process of law in the courts. And so states cannot have a bill of attainder, a legislative determination of guilt and punishment. That is a separation of powers issue that is reserved to the courts. An ex post facto law. Now, we talked about ex post facto laws last week and saw that ex post facto laws are prohibited at the federal level. And here we see that they are prohibited at the state level as well. Ex post facto means punishing somebody for something that was legal when the person did it. Here's an example. We have quite a drive today to legalize marijuana. And personally, I think there's a lot of danger in that. A lot of people don't seem to realize that the type of marijuana that we are talking about today is much, much stronger than that which was in the 60s and so on. It's much more stronger, much more dangerous, much more addictive, much more likely to lead to other forms of drug addiction and so on. I think this is a very dangerous step, but a lot of states are talking about this. But let's say that right now, marijuana is legal in, let's say here in Alabama. It isn't, but let's say it is. And let's say that next week, a law is passed that makes marijuana illegal. And then we charge somebody with violating that law for having smoked marijuana this week. No, you can change the law, but you can't apply it retroactively to punish people 
for something that was legal when they did it. Likewise, you can't increase the punishment. You can't raise the offense from a misdemeanor to a felony. You can, but you have to charge the person with what it was at the time the offense was committed, the misdemeanor. You can't raise the punishment from, let's say, three years to five years. You have to punish the person according to the limits of the old law. You can't make it more difficult to get a conviction. If the law previously said that no one can be convicted of this crime without the testimony of three eyewitnesses, and between the time the crime was committed and when he goes to trial, we change that to, say, two witnesses. No, you have to try him under the standard of evidence by the old law. Anyway, so this is a very important principle. In fact, Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1813 to Isaac McPherson, the sentiment that ex post facto laws are against natural right is so strong in the United States that few, if any, of the state constitutions have failed to prescribe them. And some of the framers, like James Wilson, at the Constitutional Convention, thought that ex post facto laws were so extra legal or illegal that they were what we call void ab initio, that is void from the beginning, and it wasn't even necessary to prohibit them, but they wanted to make sure it was prohibited in very express terms. Anyway, so no laws that are ex post facto, a state cannot do this, nor can the federal government do it. And then no law that impairs the obligation of contract. Now let's explain what this means. The Founding Fathers believed that property rights and liberty rights were very important, and that this right included not just the right to own and use property, but also the right to buy and sell and enter into contracts for property and for labor. Now, the right to make a contract is, I would say, guaranteed in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of life, liberty, and property, but contract is not going to be of much value if you can't enforce it in court. If we have a contract, but anybody is free to break the contract and I can't do anything about it, then the right to contract doesn't mean much. And so impairing the obligation of contract means that a state cannot prevent you from suing somebody to enforce your contract, suing somebody for violating your contract. Now, this seemed to be a very sacrosanct right. It, the question was whether it applied to contracts that you might make with the state or the federal government, as well as contracts with a private individual. But at least as far as individuals were concerned, this was considered to be a very sacrosanct right until 1934 with the case of Home Building and Loan Association versus Blaisdell, case out of Minnesota that went to the United States Supreme Court in the time of the Great Depression. Now, in this case, we had mortgages. And of course, you know what happens when you take out a mortgage on a home or a business or something like that. The lender agrees to loan you money to buy your home. You agree to make monthly payments on that mortgage. And part of the terms are that if you don't make your payments, then the mortgage holder, the bank, or whatever it may be, has the right to sue you to repossess your home for failing to make your payments. Well, we were in a time of depression, 1934, and Minnesota had passed a mortgage 
Minnesota Mortgage Moratorium Act that simply said that for a certain amount of time, several years, nobody, no bank or other association can sue on a mortgage. A lot of people would have lost their homes if this had not been put into effect. But, and the mortgage companies are saying, you mean you're depriving us of the money that we loan these people? No, no, we're not depriving you of it. You will get your money eventually. In fact, people that are gonna owe you interest during the time that they aren't making their payments, you'll get your money and you'll get more interest. But we're just saying that we're gonna put a moratorium on this. And then when we get out of this depression, people can make payments, you'll get your money and they will, <clears throat> and they'll keep their homes and everybody will be happy. And the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 margin, upheld that law as constitutional. Frankly, I would disagree. Because what the mortgage company was saying is, you've deprived us of the right to contract or, or to force compliance with the terms of the mortgage agreement. And the Congress or the Supreme Court simply said, well, we see that this is a reasonable restriction on the obligation of contract. It, not a total abrogation of the contract, it's just a reasonable impairment of it. And we don't think that violates the clause here in Article 1, Section 10. Now, what I'm going to ask you to think about is, is this really fair to the mortgage company? And let's look at that after we take our break. We have the better part of a minute here, Colonel, as, as we're moving forward. Um, what are we going to be talking about as we come into our fourth and final segment of the show? I'm going to complete Article 1, Section 10, or try to. Okay. Is, is there enough of it that are, are we in doubt till we're going to have time? I think we can do it. We might have to go over some of it rather quickly, but yes. Okay. All right. I just, the only reason I ask this is because there's a lot to the Constitution, but uh, we will take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. We'll be back in just a few moments with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law here on Constitution Classroom. And pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I would seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect an individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. And we are just uh, putting the finishing touches on Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. Exactly. And we've been looking at this provision that the states may not impair the obligation of contract. Contract was a very important right, as the framers saw it. And it was essential to that right that you be able to sue in court to enforce your contract or the contract wouldn't mean very much. Anyway, we saw the Blaisdell case out of Minnesota, the Minnesota Mortgage Moratorium Act, as it was called, where the court said that simply putting a moratorium on mortgage foreclosures, saying they'll get their money eventually, they're just going to have to wait for a while, that is a reasonable impairment. And so it does not violate the impairment of contract clause. But notice what they've done here. I think they've effectively amended the Constitution. The Constitution says that no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. They have, in effect, written in the margin there unreasonably impairing the obligation of contracts. And you could maybe argue that's what it should have said, but it didn't. And the court has, in effect, amended the Constitution. But now let's look at this from the other standpoint. Let's suppose that the mortgage company were to be making an argument to the legislature, look, we are really in trouble right now. So many people are defaulting on their mortgages. We are really, really in trouble here. We're going to go under. And so we're asking you to pass an act that we'll call the Minnesota Mortgage Acceleration Act that requires people to pay double payments on their mortgages. And that way, 
they'll get their mortgages paid off sooner, they'll save all that accumulated interest, and we'll get out of this temporary cash problem that we have right now. Obviously, everybody in the country would be upset at that, but isn't that just as much or as little an impairment of the obligation to contract as when you put a moratorium? In other words, the framers had a reason for treating contracts as though they were sacrosanct. And I think the court has amended it and amended it unwisely. And we go on to say that states may not grant any title of nobility. We've also seen that for the federal government and the states cannot do so either. States, we also read now, cannot without the consent of the Congress. We've already seen some things the states can't do now. Now we see some things they can't do without Congress's consent. They can't lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports. In other words, states can't charge people for shipping goods into the ports and so on, except what is absolutely necessary for executing inspection laws. In other words, they can have inspection fees, so long as those are related to the cost of inspections. But they can't simply use a tax on imported goods, and they can't simply use a tax and call it an inspection fee. It has to be absolutely necessary for the inspection laws. And anyway, all of these shall be for the Treasury of the United States, shall be subject to the revision and control of Congress. Congress can revise anything the states do in this area. And then we see that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty or tonnage, that is, any charge for ships coming into the ports, that they cannot keep troops. Now, this doesn't include the reserve militia. The reserve militia is not considered troops under this clause. This refers rather to a standing army. And even though in every state we have a National Guard, and even though the National Guard will have some people who are on duty full-time with the National Guard, that still is considered to be other than keeping troops. Keeping troops refers to standing army. States are not going to have ships of war in times of peace. And how much states ever had ships of war is open to some question, but that's more of a federal matter. But again, the idea of all of this is that matters of war and peace matters of a navy, matters of a standing army, these are federal matters, not state matters. And in foreign affairs, we are one nation. In domestic affairs, we are 13 nations. It goes on to say that states may not enter into an agreement or compacts with other states. And there are a lot of exceptions to this. If a state wants to enter a compact with another state concerning tuition, for example, that can be done. For example, we have most states will have something they call in-state tuition. Residents will pay a certain amount of tuition to send their children to a college in the state, and people from out of state will pay more. In fact, we see under privileges and immunities that we're going to see later on that states cannot restrict their colleges and universities to people within the state. If they have a state university open, it's got to be open to people from out of state, just like people within the state. However, recognizing that people in the state are paying taxes to support that institution, and people from out of state are not, they can charge resident versus non-resident tuition. States can do that, at least so long as it's reasonable. 
Now, what a state can also do then is, let's say, Mississippi could enter into an agreement with Alabama that we won't charge out-of-state tuition for Alabama students coming to our Mississippi college colleges if you Alabamans won't charge our Mississippi kids out-of-state tuition to go to your colleges. So reciprocal agreements like this are permissible. And reciprocal hunting and fishing agreements are permissible. We have laws, for example, that states can impose hunting licenses. They can't deny hunting licenses to people from out of state, but they can make people from out of state pay a higher rate for them because people in state are paying taxes to support forests and so on that people from out of state are not. But if the state wants to say people from, let's say if Alabama wants to say people from Georgia can have the same in-state hunting license rate that people from Alabama have, so long as you Georgians give our Alabama hunters the same in-state rate as you charge, that kind of reciprocal agreement is permissible. Trade agreements, things like that are allowed, but more complicated agreements and more agreements that might seem outside of the normal things that you would expect states to be doing, those would be prohibited by this clause. Likewise, they can't enter into compacts with a foreign power. States also may not engage in war unless they are actually invaded. And in other words, if a state is invaded, it doesn't have to wait for Congress to take action. They can call up the guard and repel that invasion on their own. But otherwise, they have to work in concert with the federal government. That brings us to the close, then, of Article One of the Constitution. And Article One, we might say in closing, is possibly the most important article of the entire Constitution. It's also the longest article, because Article One sets up the legislative branch of government. And I think it's fair to say that the framers intended that the legislative branch would be the most powerful branch of government. In fact, Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers says that the legislative branch exercises will, that is, they determine the policy of the nation. The executive branch exercises force, that is, they carry out the will of the legislature, and the judicial branch exercises judgment. That is, the judicial branch only interprets what the will of Congress and the force of the executive has been. And so Hamilton says that the judicial branch is the least dangerous branch of government. And most of the framers, I think, would have agreed that that was to be the case. Now, with judicial review and judicial activism, where now we have come to a living constitution interpretation, where this means not only interpreting what the Constitution says, but also interpreting what they think it ought to say and giving it new meanings as they see fit with each generation. So the result of all this is that it may be that the judicial branch has become the most powerful branch. It may also be that the executive branch has become the most powerful branch. In fact, one of the things that we saw probably in Rome was that Rome ceased to be a republic and became an empire probably around 50 AD. Because at that time, we saw that rather than the Senate of Rome being the governing body of Rome, rather the dictator who became the emperor would make the decisions 
and the Senate would simply rubber stamp whatever the executive had decided. Have we come to that point? Well, we're going to see that next week when we get to Article 2, the executive branch. Okay. Any, uh, any kind of homework you want to give our listeners that uh, could better prepare them for that discussion? Maybe break out a copy of the Constitution and read yes, it for themselves? Yes, a copy of the Constitution and read it. But particularly next week, read Article 2, dealing with the executive branch of government. Okay. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, brought to you by uh, the Foundation for Moral Law, where Colonel John, for your host, Colonel John Eidsmo, uh, happens to work. You can check out our archives at lovingliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us. <laughs>